This is News Central. The station that keeps you informed. 2002. The Jade Ordy Podcast, episode number 138, Lacking Evidence. Today on the Jay Doherty Podcast. The president's groundless voter fraud claims continue, striking at least recently a relatively new division within the grand old party, which his staffers and loyalists are scrambling to defend. We are going to start with some fascinating media news, as we did last time, and then we will explore the interesting trend occurring in the White House these days. As the president's voter fraud claims become more animated, so does the intensity with which his relevance fizzles. A fact check of Trump's voter fraud claims and how he's acting on them is next. Also, coronavirus numbers in flux once again around the country. The latest numbers, words from the CDC, and analysis of the incoming administration's plan to deal with the virus, along with details about the new vaccine and its competitive market, all next on episode number 138 of the Jay Doherty Podcast. Objective monologue on current events. This is the Jay Doherty Podcast. Here's Jay Doherty. That is correct, everyone. Thank you very much for being here. This is the Jay Doherty Podcast, episode number 138. Thank you very much for being here. Saturday, November 21st, 2020, 3.30 p.m. as we come on the air and uh, also record on the podcast. You were a reference to the year 2002 in the intro to this uh, podcast, and if you can figure out why that reference was made, and you'll be able to figure out if you listen to this entire episode, there is something very, very discreetly and secretly hidden in this episode that has some reference to the year 2002. I doubt anyone will be able to <laughs> figure it out. I, I had to research it myself in order to come up with it, and it's a very, very, very subtle thing. So if you can somehow figure out why the year 2002 was mentioned, and then you email uh, your explanation to comments at j-dory.com, you will get a shout-out on next episode and perhaps win a special prize as well. So uh, if that is not incentive enough, I don't know what is. (laughs) Please, if you can figure that out, I will be extremely impressed and give you a large shout-out on uh, next episode's podcast uh, and or whenever you get around to emailing it anytime within the next couple hundred years should do. Today's quote of the day, a new segment that we're doing, um, is going to be very interesting. And and basically, I've been wanting to sort of do this segment for a while because I think there's a lot of wisdom, obviously, in the world. Um, (laughs) And uh, there's a lot of people that have said a lot of good things over the years. And so we're going to do this new segment called the quote of the day. It's going to happen every episode and may or may not carry some connection to the contents of this episode or to the contents of the episode of which the quote is spoken on, but it will certainly be or have been relevant at some point to kick out to kick off today's uh, episode and the beginning of the quote of the day's uh, the quote of the day segment. Our first quote comes from George Orwell, who said, "All issues are political issues and politics itself is a mass of lies, evasions, folly, hatred, and schizophrenia. So you can, I'll leave that to you to uh, interpret to your own devices. We begin though today, as the promo said, with uh, the media, the media and news and the politics and TV ratings. So for the first part of this episode, we're going to sort of work backwards for reasons that will soon become clear. Of course, the two things that uh, President Trump Uh, has quite the passion for are marketing and ratings, two things that all media executives and advertising agencies either have a deep passion for and or stress incessantly about. The latter of how I'm categorizing the president's uh, two passions, of course, ratings, have been quite the uh, subject of contention based on, once again, a lack of evidence from the president, a theme that you will see throughout this episode. Feels like ages ago, but on November 12th, the president... Uh, tweeted that Fox News daytime ratings, and I'm quoting him here, have completely collapsed. He says, weekend daytime, even worse. Very sad to watch this happen, but they forgot what made them successful. What got them there? They forgot the golden goose. The biggest difference between 2016 
election and 2020 election was at Fox News, says the president on uh, or said the president on uh, 10 at 10, 10 a.m. on November 12th, 2020. We'll circle back to that tweet momentarily, uh, but I wanted to provide that with some context for why we are going to be talking about this. I'd first like to correct the president and say that Fox News has actually had the best primetime ratings consistently quarter after quarter during many, if not all, the days leading up to the election and on election night. We talked about that even before the president tweeted last episode. They've had a very consistently... uh, led against CNN, MSNBC, and primetime, and the other networks that cover election night, um, you know, striking double from what uh, even non-cable networks were covering, ABC, I think, NBC, they had more than double uh, their coverage, if I remember correctly. In fact, as you may remember, uh, last episode, I talked about a Deadline article about how Fox broke a record for TV ratings during election night coverage and what I like to call state calling periods where they, you know, where Fox just dominated every network there was that was competing against them. Nellie Andreva, the co-editor of in chief at uh, Deadline of TV at Deadline, wrote a fantastic and very easy to understand article which you can find at the website j-dorty.com saying that Fox News' primetime coverage of election night 2020 topped all television networks and set a record for the most-watched election night coverage in cable news history. FNC, Fox News Channel's primetime uh, coverage, averaged 13.7 million total viewers and nearly 5 million in the 25-54 demographic, beating ABC, NBC, CBS, and all cable news networks in both. Do you remember when uh, ratings used to be an insider's game that media freaks like you and me and you know, would follow? I don't know. I, that's no longer the case because <laughs> Fox is, uh, obviously the president has made it no longer the case, but uh, Fox's Brian Flood published a piece bragging for and about the network's achievements. Uh, and perhaps this is a common thing to do these days, but it was very ironic to see the braggadocious spirits of you know, ratings-measured success brought to the mainstream, so to speak. You can uh, go ahead and read Mr. Flood's uh, analysis of Fox's, uh, and sort of more statement of facts of Fox's uh, achievements in a more braggadocious spirit if you uh, want to go to Fox instead of Deadline. It is impressive that they have uh, so many viewers, and really I think that's because their narratives are uh, so much more, in the primetime hours, more cohesive and uh, more, also they're the only conservative network. We talked about this last time. You know, CNN, MSNBC, uh, arguably sometimes NBC, uh, they are left, and they're across three channels. Fox is the only conservative, really, in the mainstream. And some would argue, especially now, that they're not even... That they are conservative, but they're not uh, as pro-Trump as they used to be. That's sort of a mischaracterization. I I think Fox has sort of been overestimated to be in favor of Trump for a while, editorially speaking or structurally speaking. I don't think, you know, obviously it's a very conservative network. Their primetime lineup is three conservatives right in a row. And, you know, there's certainly a conservative tint in the way they write and how they write their headlines and that sort of thing. But... You know, I, I think the uh, Fox was always leaned conservative. That gets good ratings for them. That's the market that they're trying to hit. But the uh, opinion hosts, I think, I would think, I presume, have more control over what they want to say specifically on their show and how they want their monologues to be. I assume they write their monologues with the assistance of others. But, you know, they have more direct, independent control over what they say or what they do. Uh, whereas, you know, the midday lineup and that sort of thing, they sort of have to be more straight. And there are there are straightaway anchors like Brett Baer and, and many others that I've seen who sort of, uh, you know, deliver the facts as they are. Of course, there is opinion with Brett Baer I mean, and others, uh, but they're not afraid to call out lies when they see them, especially with conspiracy theories and all of the nonsense that arise, that is arising right now. Uh, you know, all this voter fraud talk. So, Fox News' ratings are extremely high, but the question is, if they're so popular, why don't people like them? The age-old question that has uh, plagued humanity since the dawn of <laughs> dawn of all social hierarchies is alas very different with the constructs uh, surrounding money and media that uh, are interfering with the answer. The genesis, in my opinion, of Trump's newfound hatred for Fox News was their election night decision to call Arizona earlier than any of the other networks 
on election night, which caused, as you may remember, the following chance Fox News sucks, captured by MSNBC's Gotti Schwartz, and uh, this was sort of the impetus for all the backlash that Fox got uh, that was captured in the direct aftermath of Arizona's call. Here was Gotti Schwartz on MSNBC after Fox had called uh, Arizona during the election. And they're actually chanting, Fox News sucks. Fox News sucks. The reason why they're chanting that is because Fox News called Arizona uh, for Biden yesterday. And a lot of people are angry about that. We have not called uh, Arizona uh, a lot of other organizations have made that decision not to call Arizona. It is much too close right now, but this is a scene outside okay, so, of the Maricopa Election Center, and we're going to keep an eye on Yeah, so that is uh, Gotti Schwartz. He did a good job <laughs> covering that. It's certainly a paradoxical chant and a, an odd event to be covering, hearing Trump supporters uh, chant Fox News sucks when, you know, you typically hear them say CNN sucks. A more detailed breakdown of uh, how that night unfolded across multiple networks uh, can be found on episode number 137 of the J. Doherty podcast at j-doherty.com slash 137. That has concluded our recap. We now move on and uh, return back to the new developments. And by new, I mean happening since the time, uh, you know, since the last time a new episode of this podcast was published. The president has berated Fox on Twitter, not only in the Golden Goose tweet, but also in another in which he gave praise to Sean Hannity, Fox's APM CST or Central Standard Time host and Trump's personal friend. Of course, uh, Hannity is one of the stars uh, of the network that he just blatantly criticized a couple hours earlier, but he has nonetheless, uh, Hannity has nonetheless aided in boosting Trump supported and baseless voter fraud conspiracies, which spawned immediately after and even before, arguably, the election, uh, and uh, grew not only with Hannity's show, but uh, his cons- Hannity's conspiratorial tendencies uh, grew onto other primetime hosts, such as Martha McCallum, who, uh, among others, and they sort of went out and uh, found anyone they could who could go and confirm their narrative uh, even if they were faceless, voice-altered, and probably non-credible. <laughs> so, uh, you know, if, if you get that reference, which you'll be able to uh, solve at j-story.com slash 138, you'll know what I'm talking about. But other than the media, the theories about this voter fraud stuff are mostly st- stemming from uh, President Trump, and they were really inserted into the echo chamber of Fox News by Trump. They were widely debunked by Trump's own appointee, though, Chris Krebs, who is the now former U.S. Director of uh, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure uh, Security Agency. Um, and this was sort of the big news of the day, the other day. Uh, and he was fired by Trump after his department released a statement in conjunction with five other acronyms uh, saying that <laughs> the November 3rd election was the most secure in American history. Their department writes, along with the five other acronyms, that right now across the country, election officials are reviewing and double-checking the election, the uh, entire election process prior to finalizing the result. When states have close elections, many will recount ballots. All of the states with close, account- with close results in the 2020 presidential race have paper records of each vote, allowing the ability to go back and count each ballot if necessary. This is an added benefit for security and resilience. This process allows for the identification and correction of any mistakes and errors. And in bold, he says, there is no evidence that any voting system deleted or lost votes, changed votes, or was in any way compromised. Other security measures like pre-election testing, state certification of voting equipment, and the U.S. Election Assistance uh, Commission's EAC certification of voting equipment help to build additional confidence in the voting systems used in 2020. While we know there are many unfounded claims and opportunities for misinformation about the process of our elections, we can assure you we have the utmost confidence in the security and integrity of our elections, and you should too. When you have questions, turn to election officials as trusted voices as they administer elections. Now, none of this should be controversial. In fact, the question of whether elections are secure or not should be a positive thing. That statement should be a good thing for the country. Hearing the person who directs the cybersecurity and the infrastructure security agency of this country saying that the voting process is secure and is not, you know, uh, instrumentally being interfered with should be a good thing. However, Trump 
who uh, recently, you know, whether even if it's an apolitical, knowing that the voting system uh, is, you know, supposedly secure, for, according to the person who has a big role in running it, should be a good thing. Nonetheless, Trump, who uh, recently has been acting as a participant in his own self-created echo chamber of voter fraud conspiracies for the first time to this scale in the history of America, soon fired Mr. Krebs after officially debunking all of uh, these evidenceless voter fraud claims. The president announced on Twitter his firing, writing that uh, the recent statement by Chris Krebs on the security of the 2020 election was highly inaccurate in that there were massive improprieties in fraud, including dead people voting, poll watchers, and uh, poll watchers not allowed into the polling locations, quote-unquote glitches in the voting machines, which changed votes from Trump to Biden, late voting, and many more. Therefore, effective immediately, Chris Krebs has been terminated as director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. All of that stuff, minus the part about Chris Krebs being fired, uh, is inaccurate. Twitter flagged both of his tweets saying that the claim about election fraud is disputed. There's a big exclamation point among many of his tweets saying that the uh, claim had been disputed. Because it's not true. There's no evidence that any of the things he talked about actually happened on a uh, large scale. And I'm all for letting the process play out. I am not even basing much of my commentary on <laughs> on uh, my, you know, I'm, I'm not basing it on Trump or Biden, even though I suppose that does interfere. I can't. I can't ignore that, but I do think that this is more, this should be, the focus should be on the security of American elections and legitimately how secure they are, whether they're, you know, what the evidence is, and looking at the actual purpose of voting. I mean, there's no point in even voting if, if uh, you know, it's not secure, and if you have people telling you that it is secure because it is secure, and then you fire them because you don't agree with the outcome of the security or the elections that were secure, that shows weakness above all. And then if you lie about that, there was, I mean, it's just a complete mess. And this is a really interesting scenario on top of that because there simply was and still is no evidence of wide-scale voter fraud. This has been known since days after the election when Trump would say all this stuff. You know, I mean, it, it, it's been known for a pretty long time now. And if Trump had won by the votes counted on election day, he would, under no circumstances, question the legitimacy of the elections. He would likely accept and move on or ask for a recount like he did in the early days of his 2017 presidency with the attempts to prove that he got more ballots than he actually did. Now, that is not to say that presidents, or really anyone, don't or doesn't have the right to due process or the right to legally pursue verifying election claims. Trump does have every right, and he's executing that right, but the annoyance I find in this situation is not the legality of the mess, but rather the twofold uh, messes on two different subjects. I now present to you the two worst things about Trump's voter fraud claims. First, Trump and his cronies promote uh, entirely baseless conspiracy theories as if they are fact, and that is just wrong in my opinion. I'll leave it at that for the first one. The second, and perhaps more complicated one, and worse for the country, by the way, is that Trump has made the entire situation about himself and not the presidencies or the duty of the presidency. It is a circular logic situation, in my opinion. Trump wants to be president, but he's not doing the work that the president has to do. The intentions of the very few good-hearted and well-meaning political public servants out there are to help people. And if Trump really cared about maintaining the presidency, he'd probably be helping people through the coronavirus, he'd be legislatively aggressive in passing a stimulus, he'd continue his, uh, or at least uh, have, you know, be updating the public. He did, his vice president did once, and he, he showed his face at the podium once too recently, but he's sort of been uh, MIA to the public other than on Twitter, which, and all of his, most of his tweets have been about uh, his own voter fraud conspiracy theories. But if he wasn't doing all that, he probably would be helping people or at least, you know, going through the daily operations of his administration or government, what he would perceive to be helping people through the coronavirus, etc. You know, I would think his team and he would be preparing documents or working towards a successful transition and just carrying on with the standard, very boring daily operations of government of which he cares and knows nothing about. Quite simply, the, and that's not to knock him. I mean, most people don't. I don't know that. I think the, the bureaucracy of government is a very boring thing, and it takes a really strong mind, <laughs> both intellectually and just 
you know, structurally to continue and move on and not be miserable throughout that whole entire system of government. Uh, and that's just not Trump's skill set. And it's very few people's skill set. Trump is a master marketer. He's the marketer in chief. That is the extent of his knowledge. No politics and no government. This is, you know, unfortunately a very common thing on both sides of the aisle, regardless of whether or not there are voter fraud accusations or not. Both Democrats and Republicans are uh, very market-minded and marketing-minded, especially in Congress. I mean, House representatives are re-elected every two years, so they barely have an off-season for campaigning. It's constantly just getting re-elections, getting donations, marketing yourself, etc. It all comes down to who is the best marketer and who has the most money in modern democracies. And the fact that Trump has made this entire voter fraud nonsense about his ability to market and not the country's ability to move forward is not at all good. I say all of that, though, while maintaining that legally he does have the right. And this is something that is being disputed on, on you know, liberal networks and that sort of thing. He does have the right to pursue legal action if, for whatever reason, he believes that's necessary. Um, And that's... That should not be questioned in my... It should be questioned, it should be analyzed, but it shouldn't be, uh, you know, deemed or commentated on as if it's an unjust thing, something that he shouldn't be doing. Uh, he has, in my opinion, no no basis for doing that, but nonetheless, he does still have the right, as George Bush said in a statement that uh, he released too. I thought the wording of that was great as well. You can read that statement at j-dorty.com slash 138. However, all of this, though, becomes a problem uh, in my mind when, when Trump blocks the incoming administration's efforts to work with his team to ensure a su successful transition of power. This is, uh, you know, exhibit A for why Trump's voter fraud claims are really damaging. And this is what really people should be focusing on more than the conspiracy theories, more than the media and Fox News. Trump should, at least for now, if he, you know, just let Biden in. He won the election. The The recounts, which we're going to talk about in a second, all certified that Biden won the election. The electoral college votes, it's a big win. And yeah, Biden won very narrowly, but you just got to accept the election. It's a divided country. And the favor, the, the odds were just happened to be in Biden's favor. Uh, the AP reports that uh, Trump's refusal to cooperate with his successor is forcing President-elect Joe Biden to seek unusual workarounds to prepare for the exploding public health threat and evolving national security challenges he will inherit in just nine weeks. Blocked from the official intelligence briefing traditionally afforded to uh, incoming presidents, Biden gathered virtually on Tuesday with a collection of uh, intelligence, defense, and diplomatic experts. None of the experts uh, is currently affiliated with the U.S. government, which is raising questions about whether Biden is being provided the most up-to-date information about dangers facing the nation. Uh, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris received a more formal briefing Tuesday as the member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, of which she was before she was uh, nominated and confirmed to be VP, or one, sorry, one VP, uh, though still has relatively limited information about the specific threats Biden will inherit, according to the Associated Press. Uh, so, it's an interesting entire uh, situation there, and, you know, what I would advise Trump to do in this situation, you know, if he really felt the need, for whatever reason, and clearly he does, to try and certify election results, waste a bunch of money trying to do that, and just refuse the, uh, you know, to accept the fact that he lost, I would just say to him, look, as far as we know, Biden won the election. There may be voter fraud, there may not be. Investigations are underway that will prove one way or another. There is always one winner and there is always one loser. And as far as we know, Biden is the winner and you are the loser. Therefore, you should let his team work with you to ensure the bigger goal, something much bigger than yourself, Mr. Trump, if you can imagine that, uh, that the country's transition is essential and the smoothness of that transition is even more essential to the fabric of this entire nation's history. And in the, in, you know, in the event, albeit unlikely event, that you were to be proven the winner of the election, then you kick Biden's team out and you continue your administration. Letting Biden's team work with Trump is a positive thing for the country and a sign of mutually healthy democracy, in my opinion. I don't think many conservatives would disagree with that, even if you flopped those names. It just so happens that Biden agrees. Here is a reporter asking him about the anxiety of uh, the American people at the fact that 
Trump may not concede. Sir, what do you say to the Americans that are anxious over the fact that President Trump has yet to concede and what that might mean for the country? Well, um, I just think it's an embarrassment, um, quite frankly. Uh, the only thing that, uh, how can I say this uh, tactfully? I, I think it will not help the president's legacy. I think that uh, I know from my discussions with foreign leaders thus far that they are hopeful that the United States democratic institutions are viewed once again as being strong and enduring. Have you tried to reach out at all to the president? And if he is watching right now, what would you say to him? Mr. President, look forward to speaking with you. Yeah, it's a good response from Biden. That's the uh, politician kicking in there. Uh, there are also a slew of Republican politicians urging the president to step down at the moment. The Washington Post had a video compilation of Republicans publicly calling for the president to concede, which you can uh, listen to and find the link to at j-dorty.com slash 138. Meanwhile, the AP reports that uh, more Republicans are doing the same thing, but behind closed doors instead. Jonathan Lemire and Lisa Mascaro at the AP write that when Kamala Harris returned to the Senate this week for the first time as vice president-elect, her Republican colleagues offered her their congratulations, and Senator Lindsey Graham greeted her with a fist bump, which you can <laughs> watch on C-SPAN. It was a sign that many Republicans have privately acknowledged uh, what they will refuse to say openly. Democrat Joe Biden and Harris won the election and will take office in January. The GOP's public silence on the reality of Biden's victory amounts to a tacit approval of Trump's baseless claims of election fraud. That is significant repercussions delaying the transition during a deadly pandemic, sowing public doubt and endangering Biden's ability to lead the portion of the country that may question his legitimacy. And uh, that is a really good point. I mean, I think you know, the only re and it, it does show how the the political system in America works. All these people, all these Republicans, or many of them, I think behind closed doors, don't really care for Trump that much. He's a loose cannon. He doesn't know anything about the policies. I mean, he, he, he doesn't know anything about the platform. He really doesn't know anything about government, I would argue. And he's not interested in government. I mean, it's just not his skill set I was talking about before. Uh, but he does have a base, and he has a large base. And if Republicans can win that base, and there are a lot of cons logical, you know, n you know, uh, conservatives that vote for Trump not because they like his character, not because you know he's he's a morally good person, but because they like his policies and they believe that his policies are uh, are good and are beneficial to them or to their family or whatever. And I understand that argument completely. And I think that should be the mindset for the most part of with which we go into voting for elections. Or, well, not really. I, I'm, I'm no one to tell anyone uh, how they should vote or how they should inform their decision, obviously. But uh, you have to not only look at the personality of a person, you have to look at the policies. Just like you can't only look at the policies, you also have to take into account the personalities. If you look at, you know, if you ignore the personality of Trump and you only take into consideration the policies and you're sort of a traditional Republican conservative governor or a person who governs or a person who, uh, you know, who believes in that that uh, conservative doctrine, then yeah, no doubt you'd uh, vote, vote for Trump based off of his record. And Trump probably couldn't, you know, he, he's given by his advisors three talking points of the work that his advisors do for him, but he doesn't really, I don't think, know or at least he hasn't proven to know much about the stuff that he actually does, especially compared to other presidents who have, you know, Republican, Republicans and Democrats who have great knowledge about, uh, you know, the, the stuff that they push. They're proud of the policies they, they enact, etc. Trump is a great marketer, and I'll leave it at that. So let's fact check the voter fraud claims as promised. Contrary to uh, what the opinion hosts on Fox News may try to scream at you, and there simply is no evidence of widespread voter fraud in any legal case or in any public manner as of right now. Uh, it's actually funny. I came across a transcript of one of Trump's many voter fraud cases in uh, counties across the country. This one that I have here is uh, from Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. Judge Richard Haas was interacting with Trump lawyer uh, Jonathan Goldstein in this exchange, where he literally, the Trump's lawyer, literally admitted that there was no evidence 
of voter fraud. I read you the transcript now. The court says, in your petition, which you have right which is right before me, and I read it several times, you don't claim that any electors or the board of the county were guilty of fraud, correct? That's correct? Trump's lawyer then says, Your Honor, accusing people of fraud is a pretty big step. Well, gee, <laughs> your boss doesn't agree with that, uh, and it, or your client doesn't agree with that. Uh, and uh, he continues, and it is rare that I call somebody a liar. Also, his client would disagree with that. And I'm not calling the board of the DNC or anybody else involved in this a liar. His client probably would disagree with that. Uh, everybody is coming to this with good faith. Not so sure about that. The DNC is coming with good faith. Not so sure, not so sure about that. We're all just trying to get an election done. Mm, yeah, definitely sure about that. It's not true. <laughs> we think these were a mistake, but we think they were a, they are a fatal mistake. And these ballots ought not to be counted. So clearly, you can understand his motives. The court responds, I understand. I'm asking you a specific question, and I'm looking for a specific answer. Are you claiming that there is any fraud in connection with these 592 disputed ballots? Goldstein then responds, to my knowledge, at present, no. So he's literally, so that's just a legal way and protective way of saying no. The court then asks once again, are you claiming that there is any undue or improper influence upon the elector with respect to these 592 ballots? To my knowledge at present, no, says Mr. Goldstein. So that's sort of interesting. Literally the entire case, he just gave up on it at that single point. You can read the full transcript, or at least part of the full transcript, Trump v. Montgomery County Board of Elections uh, on the website j-story.com slash 138. More seriously, though, or what I thought to be more seriously, uh, the president tweeted a graphic of Wisconsin's voter data which showed what he calls a dump, or spike, in votes at 3.42 a.m. Trump thought this may prove what he hypothesized about uh, in the East Room in the early morning after the November 3rd election. This is what he said on that uh, fine morning. We don't want them to find any ballots at 4 o'clock in the morning and add them to the list. Okay. So just as my heart uh, skipped a beat thinking that the president wasn't misrepresenting the facts in the tweet that I just referenced, uh, which showed indeed a spike in uh, the graph uh, at 3.42 a.m., so 4 a.m. basically, and proving Trump's hypothesis, I actually realized that he was misrepresenting the facts, and... uh, (laughs) There was potential for Biden to not win Wisconsin. Uh, When I thought that that's what he was saying, I realized something. I realized that this graph shows when votes were formally registered from different counties, and the spike represents when the votes from Milwaukee County, which is the most populous county of the entire state of Wisconsin, were registered. That's all it is. It's literally just the votes being formally registered. And because it's the most populous county, there's a big spike. That's happened for elections years before this one. And to the point about the ballots being added after the election, that is also not true because reporters literally live stream those ballots being registered on the day of the election. So once again, we receive another false or misleading tweet from our genius president. The uh, facts or the chart statistics are correct, but his interpretation of them are not. Reporter Hannah Hilliard of ABC Affiliate and Hearst Communications ABC 12 WISN corroborated the process, uh, contrary to what Trump said, as it was planned on election night. And this is a small little uh, ABC affiliate. Uh, Not small, it's actually pretty big, but uh, for Milwaukee. And um, uh, I'm saying small because uh, the clip only has a couple hundred views. But she said the following at 3.42 a.m., and it was at the time, sorry, she said this at the uh, 3.42 a.m. timestamp, that the, about the uh, 3.42 a.m. timestamp that the president and voter fraud or voter officials continue to make reference to. This, is, this was actually a reporter on the scene confirming what uh, Trump and voter, uh, Trump and his, you know, conspiracy friends are planting doubt in. 
Remember this overnight handoff between the city election commission to the county courthouse here went all according to plan. The Milwaukee Election Commission has been saying for several weeks now that they anticipated or estimated that they would be done counting absentee ballots between 3 and 6 a.m. today, and that is exactly what happened here overnight. Now, remember, these are not official results. The verification process to make them official will now begin in the coming days. And the verification process to make them official has indeed begun and now can Included, but it concluded with President Trump's contesting of the election results after they were shown to be in favor of Biden when, quote, the Trump campaign sent $3 million to the Wisconsin Elections Commission on Wednesday for a recount in the state's two largest, most Democratic counties, Milwaukee and Dane County, following a 20,000-vote victory in the state for President-elect Joe Biden, according to uh, ABC News and uh, Cheyenne Hazlett in the article that you can find at j-doherty.com slash 138. The only reason I played that WISN clip is because it shows that even local affiliates were confirming and contradicting, confirming the truth and contradicting what President Trump had to say. The uh, breaking news yesterday as I was writing this show was that a manual vote recount confirmed that Joe Biden did indeed win the state of Georgia very narrowly over Trump this year. So this is sort of shifting topics. This was the first time in 28 years that a Democrat has won Georgia. You may remember uh, Biden being sort of surprised at that at those statewide gains being reported uh, in Georgia on election night when he said this. And we're still in the game in Georgia, although that's not one we expected. So uh, that's good. His campaign was run very well in Georgia. In fact, Stacey Abrams was crucial. Uh, in campaigning for Biden, uh, and you know she served in, as you may remember, in the Georgia House of Representatives for about a decade, and uh, ran for governor in the state as well. You may remember her name uh, from when she gave the formal response to the president's State of the Union address in February of 2019. I think it's always good for uh, you know to shine light on individuals in a state by state level that aggressively campaign for a candidate and arguably uh, you know did lots for a person on a state-by-state level uh, in their, you know, helped their turnout nationally a lot, but didn't get much credit on national news. People like Abrams and hundreds of others across 49 states often get forgotten, I think, by both the candidate and the, the press uh, when they were campaigning for him and by the national electorate afterwards. So I figured I'd shine some light on Ms. Abrams, for uh, example, who has been receiving lots of credit for turning the state blue. The BBC's Chelsea Bailey wrote about Abrams' role in the campaign, particularly in relation to Kamala Harris's introduction to Biden and uh, and uh, his victory speech in the days following the election, when Harris mentioned the importance of minority women in, secured, in securing Biden's victory. Abrams is among those minority women who Senator Harris spoke about in this part of her speech, where Harris uh, was talking about how her own mother would view her, her daughter's nomination. She believed so deeply and in America where a moment like this is possible. And so I am thinking about her and about the generations of women, black women, Asian, white, Latina, Native American women, who throughout our nation's history have paved the way for this moment tonight. And that is good. And while the victory for Biden in Georgia overall was slim, the stats on a county-by-county county level show that the most densely populated districts, uh, Fulton County, uh, Gwinnett County, DeKalb County, and others, were overwhelming victories for Biden. Oh, just I mean, it's almost shocking how overwhelming these victories were. If you look, for example, in, uh, in uh, Fulton County, 381,144 votes went to Biden and 137,241 to Trump. That's 72.6% versus 26.2% in one county. And that's shown all around the country. And not, not, I only, and that's probably like, oh, well, that's, you know, not that big of a deal. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. blah. But Georgia, as we made mention uh, to before, it is a very red state. You look at the map, it is a red state, and there are counties uh, specifically that turned blue for Joe Biden, which is interesting, and really I think that comes uh, as a result of people actually getting out to vote. Uh, people were too cocky in the last election when Trump was winning because they thought, oh, the pollsters say that Hillary's going to win, and 
she is the politician and Trump is not. And, you know, Trump winning is not possible, said uh, lots of liberal districts. And I thought the same thing. Uh, <laughs> but obviously that's not where we are. And people sort of learn their lesson, which is why I think there was such a high voter turnout on both sides. I think the Republicans thought, oh, we learned, uh, or the D Democrats learned their lesson that, you know, victories for their party is are not inevitable if the person's a longtime politician. And uh, Democrats sort of learned their lesson, too, on a more base level by saying, uh, you know, we have to get out and vote. Things aren't a given. Most recently, Mike Pence gave an update about the uh, shortly forgotten coronavirus, <laughs> which is something far more important than a lot of this uh, election fraud nonsense that the president spews. And uh, when he refused to take questions or allude to his boss's voter fraud claims, talking about Pence here, the press just went absolutely crazy. Here it is. We will get through this, and we will get through this together. Mr. Vice President, Mr. And then they all leave. So that was sort of an interesting thing. I mean, I don't know. Obviously, Pence wasn't going to take any questions, uh, but there should be some sort of opportunity for reporters to ask questions. And uh, I believe, uh, you know, that that's that's been tried, but obviously that's not working. And Trump does, is not really in the mood for talking. He just wants to tweet. I think he's only made to like two or three public appearances since the entire election uh, did not go in his favor. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back. In this break, we're going to try something new. So I suppose we're introducing two new segments to this podcast episode. You'll hear in this break various jingle commercials from different sectors of the world. These jingles are licensed through uh, ProPack and are from various companies uh, of di various different industries of the past made by various jingle companies that interacted with the various industries in the past. We will uh, do this segment for a minute or two, literally, uh, for a couple of episodes to see if it's well-received. And if it's not, I will stop. But <laughs> I thought you just may be interested to hear these and sort of a nice way to pay tribute to my passion for jingles beyond just the ones that you hear on and for this podcast. Obviously, none of the what you're about to hear are actual advertisements or actual sponsors. And uh, the ones you're going to hear today total 57 seconds. They're from Alka-Seltzer Medicine, Fannie Mae Candy, Cadillac Cars. I have dozens of others from different companies, uh, and I'll play those for uh, the jingle nerds out there as well. You can uh, listen to them uh, during the breaks of this podcast now, and if it's not, if people dislike it, you can tell me. Comments at j-dorty.com, and I'll stop doing it. But obviously, none of these are actual advertisements. Just want to make that extremely clear, and uh, the disclaimer of the powerful voice of Mike with the flamethrowing music and vocals of jam will tell you that right now. The The following is not meant to be taken seriously. Down, down, down the stomach through. Round, round, round for headache too. Without Caselsi, you'll surely say. Relief is just a swallow away. Kitchen Fresh are Fannie Mae candies. Kitchen Fresh and pure. Nothing so fresh as Fannie Mae candies. Nothing so good, that's sure. Stop at the Fannie Mae shop today for Kitchen Fresh candies from Fannie Mae. It's the ultimate in elegance Cadillac. The ultimate independability. You'd never guess how easy it is to own a Cadillac. Come in and see.
You're listening to the Jay Doherty Podcast. That is correct, everyone. Thank you very much for being here. Sorry for that uh, loud thing there. Thank you very much for being here. This is the Jay Doherty Podcast, episode number 138. We now return to talk about things and more things. And the big, more important thing that uh, we're talking about now is coronavirus. Coronavirus has uh, sort of disappeared from uh, public interest, sadly, with all this voter fraud claims and all the politics that you see on uh, the cable networks and on the Washington Post and New York Times, etc. But right now, there are 57,952,904 global cases of coronavirus, according to the Johns Hopkins uh, University in Medicine Coronavirus Resource Center. Other than uh, the numbers spiking in different states around this fine country, the United States, and different places around the world, the two big stories this week are the recent urges from the CDC to stay home during Thanksgiving, and then also the progress being made on uh, one of the two vaccines, or probably both vaccines. The science behind each of those is very interesting, and we're going to cover both of those topics uh, right now. So we'll begin with the CDC's uh, Thanksgiving warning. They write, Mike Stubb and Heather Hollingsworth write, that uh, with the coronavirus surging out of control, the nation's top public health agency pleaded with Americans on Thursday not to travel for Thanksgiving and not to spend hol- the holiday with people from outside their a- their household. The Thanksgiving warning comes from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Uh, they came as the White House Coronavirus Task Force held a briefing for the first time in months, and Vice President Mike Pence concluded it without responding to questions by reporters or urging Americans not to travel. Other Americans of the task force, whose media briefings uh, were a daily fixture during the early days of the outbreak, talked about the progress being made in the development of a vaccine in that same briefing as well, and we're going to talk about that quite shortly. There's a reason I'm talking about uh, Thanksgiving, actually, before the vaccine, and that is because the vaccine is a solution and should be considered as such to a problem that should have and could have been contained months and months and months before it got out of control. That all dates back, arguably, to China and letting it get out of control there and then spreading it across the world. Uh, You know, you tend to hear conservatives say that. People can and should, and really strongly, I urge people to continue to do their part to seize the spread of this virus. The attitude, in my opinion, should not be, okay, who cares, there's a vaccine, and now we can go socialized, you know, socialize in the large groups uh, leading up to the development of the vaccine because, you know, we should have a vaccine by the end of the year. Well, mm, mm, no, I, I think it's good. You, you have to still wear a mask. Cases are spot, spiking in hotspots around the country, I've uh, you know, uh, more than they ever have, you know, in the past couple of months and, you know, in most cases. And the reason, you know, people are getting too comfortable with the low numbers um is because the reason sorry the reason cases are spiking is because people are getting too comfortable with the low numbers and then what happens after that well they spike the numbers just spike sort of an inevitability i'm sure there's some quote about that how uh you know people get too comfortable when things are going too well and they sort of take more risks and then the whole thing flips and they're no longer in that position of comfort Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's top infectious disease expert, made an appearance on Chuck Todd's show saying uh, on NBC saying that this whole mess is not over yet and won't be over until there's a good, proven, and publicly distributed vaccine ready for the public. Until then, he says, we can curve the spread by simply socially distancing and wearing a mask. In other words, it is not that hard, and he concludes with this brief explanation uh, of how you should consider the risk-benefit trade-off when making your Thanksgiving plans um, this holiday season, as they say. Here he is. Putting vaccines aside for a moment, which will be extraordinarily helpful, if we implement the simple public health measures that I was mentioning to you, we can blunt that inflection. It doesn't have to be as high up. You brought up the issue with the holidays. I think the people in this country need to realistically do a risk-benefit assessment. Every family is different. Everyone has a different level of risk that they want to tolerate. But when you think of the holiday season and the congregating indoors at what are innocent, lovely functions like meals with family and friends, you've got to at least think in terms of evaluating Do you have people 
in your family that are elderly that might have underlying conditions like someone on chemotherapy or other things that weaken their immune system. So you don't want to call it all off, but you want to say at least give you and your family the benefit of having considered what is the risk benefit of doing that as opposed to constraining what you do to the very core people who live in your home. You just need to consider it and make your own decision. That's a fantastic piece of advice, in my opinion. Someone that something that all everyone should hear. It should not be a political statement to say that you just have to be wise. Uh, I mean, he's a good person, very well respected, uh, infectious disease expert. So uh, you know, I would listen to him uh, above anyone else. And uh, he, uh, yeah, I I think it's really not that hard. What he's saying to do, uh, the advice that he's giving is really, I mean, really smart. Uh, as far as I can see, like I, I you know, he, he gets criticized all the time for no reason. I don't, you know, no reason that I can understand, but, um, yeah, he, he, he said putting vaccines aside, putting the, the potential for a solution aside, you still have to wear masks. You still have to, you know, take this thing seriously and wait until a vaccine can, you know, not only be developed, but also distributed because this vaccine, you know, it could take they're saying that, you know, the vaccine could be distributed uh, in, you know, or could be completed. The development could be completed by, you know, around the end of this year. But then the distribution, especially to general people in the public, you know, with the exclusion of, um, you know, military and medical professionals. I mean, that takes that could take months or even a year. So the vaccine at the moment is sort of being treated as this sort of end-all, be-all solution to the coronavirus problem. And essentially it is, and it should be treated that way. But the development and distribution and the process of actually getting it to the end point of the virus and us surviving to get to the end point <laughs> is the subject of the controversy that we've been talking about. If you uh, had the chance to listen to episode number 134 of TJDP, you may remember that we talked about vaccine manufacturers and what companies have a role in this vaccine. Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, and Johnson & Johnson were the players in the vaccine development game back then. The playing field has since narrowed. Pfizer and Moderna say that they are the primary contenders these days, or at least that's what's being perceived. In a November 18th press release, Pfizer said that their vaccine is... Ready to go. They say that it's 95, well, uh, yeah, 95% effective against COVID-19 beginning 28 days after the first dose. 170 confirmed cases of COVID-19 were evaluated with 162 observed in the placebo group versus eight in the vaccine group. Uh, and you can read their full statement uh, in italicized text on uh, the show notes, or you can go directly to their website and we'll have the link uh, over there at j-story.com. Pfizer reports that their efficacy was consistent across age, gender, race, and ethnicity groups and demographics. They observed efficacy in adults uh, over 65 years of age, 94%. Safety data milestone uh, required by the FDA for emergency use authorization has been achieved, and the data demonstrates that the vaccine was well tolerated across all populations with over 43,000 participants enrolled, no serious safety concerns observed. The only grade, the grade three adverse event greater than 2% in frequency was fatigue at 3.8% and headache at 2.0%. I mean, people are just tired and have headaches, so and it's at a 38 and 2.0%. I don't know, it seems pretty promising if you don't want to get the virus. However, and I will talk about this shortly, it is a... Vaccines are a very interesting topic to discuss, and you have to really sort of take Fauci's approach and be a uh, risk-benefit analysis contender when you look at the uh, vaccine and, you know, how good or bad it is for yourself or whatever. I mean, not not good or bad for yourself, but you have to be careful and vigilant because there have been vaccines where they have side effects like six years later, and they don't they can't test those because they're being rushed for you know, uh, safety reasons and public health reasons. Moderna's vaccine held similar statistics, but they're different in certain ways. Uh, in fact, some really interesting ways. The BBC had a chart um, where they go through and say, you know, these are the difference we, differences between the vaccines that uh, Moderna and Pfizer are reporting. Pfizer's work with BioNTech, which is a German company, uh, to develop their vaccine. Both of the vaccines use uh, the RNA technology, which is ribonucleic acid. It's a vir virus genetic code. Uh, and I don't know what I'm talking about when I say that. <laughs> I'm just reading what the uh, article says. 
Uh, I'm not a scientist, obviously, by any means. <laughs> but um, the uh, doses for the Pfizer Bio BioNTech one, two injections 21 days apart, the Moderna one, two injections four weeks apart. Pfizer says, and I think this stat may have changed by the time you listen to this, uh, but uh, Pfizer says theirs is 90% effective. Moderna says 95% effective for theirs. The storage for the Pfizer uh, and BioNTech one is negative 75 degrees Celsius, and the Moderna one is negative 20 degrees Celsius for up to six months. So why the drastic change and the drastic difference in temperature? I thought that was a really interesting scientific question. So I went to uh, an article in NPR, and they, un they say that to understand why the vaccines need to be frozen to begin with, it helps to understand a bit about how they work. This is an article written by uh, Selena Simmons Duffin over at NPR. They say that both the Moderna and Pfizer uh, vaccine candidates use a new approach to unlock the body's immune defenses. We talked about this before, RNA or messenger RNA, mRNA, to turn a patient's cell into factories that make one particular coronavirus vac uh, uh, protein. It's a vaccine technology that's so new that no mRNA vaccines have ever been approved by the FDA. That should be a red flag, in my opinion, for the whole entire coronavirus vaccine development. I'm very weary of that because I, uh, you know, people should be very, very uh, vigilant and uh, mindful of what they put in their bodies. I mean, all the experts say that it's legit. I think, uh, you know, the the big question is, would you feel safe taking a vaccine, sir, sir, sir? You know, like, uh, ma'am, 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 like, they're trying to press all these politicians on, oh, would you feel safe taking the vaccine? Are you a good public citizen? Will you do it? Uh, big line in the VP debate was Kamala Harris saying, I'm not going to take a vaccine if Trump tells me to take a vaccine. Uh, but she said if uh, Fauci does, she will. And I think that should be and uh, sort of is the way that uh, things are happening these days. Back to the M&M analogy that they used, and I thought this was an interesting comparison. They're comparing basically the shell of an M&M to lipid nanoparticles which surround the vaccine in uh, the shell of the vaccine. So they say that the next step uh, to secure the vaccine was to use lipid nanoparticles, which this expert with the last name Lou explains uh, is kind of like putting chocolate inside a candy coating. You have an M&M so the chocolate doesn't melt. So the vaccine is the actual vaccine with the mRNA nucleosides, uh, which are the inside structure building blocks, as uh, Leo calls it, and the lipo nanopart lipid nanoparticles surround them. But apparently, and this is kept secret, the chemical formula of those lipid nanoparticles and the actual type of formula that they're using is different across the vaccine, which causes the difference in temperatures and the difference in temperature requirements for each of them. The biggest question and biggest concern I have when looking at all this data is, is it safe? How do we know that there won't be side effects that, you know, show up years later if this thing was moved along so quickly? I mean, the data does look very promising, but data, as we've learned in this election's polls and in many other places, is often incorrect. So what on earth is the answer to that question? Dr. Fauci had one at the White House podium the other day. And I hear a lot now when we made these announcements this past Monday and then two Mondays ago about some reticence of people. Well, did you rush this? Was this too fast? Is it really safe? And is it really efficacious? The process of the speed did not compromise at all safety, nor did it compromise scientific integrity. It was a reflection of the extraordinary scientific advances in these types of vaccines which allowed us to do things in months that actually took years before. So I really want to settle that concern that people have about that. What about the decision of the data? Who looked at the data? Was that some force that was maybe trying to put something over on you? No, it was actually an independent body of people who have no allegiance to anyone, not to the administration, not to me, not to the companies that looked at the data and deemed it to be sound. Now that data will be examined very carefully by the FDA, who together with a advisory committee, the Vaccine and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee, or VERPAC, are gonna look at that before the FDA makes the decision about putting this forth for an emergency use authorization or ultimately for a license. So we need to put the rest, any concept that this was rushed in an inappropriate way. This is really solid.
Uh, so obviously that that uh, last line and even maybe the first part of the second 30 seconds was all to just diffuse the noise of the conspiracy theorists out there. Not that they would take Fauci seriously, which is unfortunate, but uh, that is sort of, I think, what that line was in there to do. And it also is not even, it is a reasonable concern to think, well, you know, these vaccines were rushed so quickly, uh, or not rushed, but they were produced so quickly, they were developed so quickly, you hear about vaccine trials taking years and years, and how are they able to get this done? Fauci says that it is secure, and uh, he holds that to be uh, his responsibility as well, which is sort of interesting, or at least he will take credit, or not not take credit, I don't know what the word is, but he, he will hold that to himself and uh, be accountable for that statement, which is an interesting thing. So, the Washington Post had a an interesting timeline of uh, how these vaccines have been developed and what the timeline has actually been. No, November 9th was the day that Pfizer and BioNTech reported that their coronavirus vaccine is more than 90% effective. Moderna then reported on November 16th that theirs was 95% effective. Now, the next steps, according to the Washington Post, is that companies will apply to federal regulators for authorization to provide the vaccines more broadly. FDA regulators will then review the effectiveness, safety, and manufacturing of each vaccine. Following that, an FDA advisory committee will vote on whether to get recommended that, uh, that the agency greenlight each vaccine. In December, the FDA may authorize one or both of the vaccine, vaccines. Sorry, uh, One or two days later, a Center for, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Advisory Committee or CDC Advisory Committee, will discuss prioritizing vaccines for high-risk groups, and then uh, hopefully by the end of 2020, the government projects that uh, Pfizer and Moderna will provide 40 million doses, enough for 20 million people by the end of the year, which is, and then they also have to distribute that. Trump talked about that in the debate, how he's working on Operation uh, Warp Speed or whatever to distribute these vaccines, something that I actually thought was uh, one of his few strengths in that debate. So how would you feel about taking a vaccine? The American public is not so, not so sure as of recent. According to a survey taken by the Pew Research Center, about half of U.S. adults, 51%, now say they would definitely or probably get a, COVID, get a vaccine to prevent COVID-19 if they were available today. Nearly as many as 49% say they definitely or probably would not get vaccinated at this time. Intent to get a COVID-19 vaccine has fallen from 72% in May, which is a 21 per, uh, percentage point drop, which is sort of an interesting thing because, you know, maybe maybe people thought that way when we were sort of in the thick of it and we were like, oh, anything to make this go away. Yeah, I'll take a vaccine. I'll do anything to get me you know, blah, blah, blah. Maybe that's why they thought that way. Maybe that's why there's been a drop. It's an interesting st statistic and it's an interesting study, which you can read. It's pretty long and they go through. Uh, the demographics, uh, you know, age-wise and ethnicity-wise, determining, and, and uh, I think uh, income-wise, to determine uh, who would be willing to uh, take this vaccine. I'm actually not sure if they went through the uh, income demographics of, of uh, the coronavirus vaccine in this particular study, although I do know that that has been a demographic that's often taken into consideration by Pew Research Center. I'm pretty sure there's other studies that do talk about uh, how people uh, of different demographics in all ways sort of view taking uh, the potential for taking a vaccine, which is pretty interesting. You can share your thoughts uh, on a vaccine, whether you take it. Uh, the question, how would you feel taking about taking a vaccine? You can uh, email them, comments at j-dory.com, or call, leave a voicemail, 312-625-8492, the official phone number for this podcast. The FDA has uh, not approved a vaccine for public use yet, and there is no indication from any public health officials that a vaccine has been authorized or is ready for the public. Latest news on COVID-19 and all of the topics we discussed today can be found at j-dory.com slash coronavirus or at thedoortyfiles.com and uh, particular show notes for this podcast can be found at j-doorty.com slash 138. Make sure you wear a mask. Make sure you be safe. That is all I can say. <laughs> if you take away one thing, that is what I encourage you to take away. The phone number for this bot, or sorry, audio clips for this podcast were from CBS News, ABC News, NBC News, The White House, MSNBC, C-SPAN, Fox News, The Washington Post, uh, and other trusted sources of the JD Media Network. Music that you hear playing right now from Music by Aiden, complete credit and link to hear the full song can be found at j-story.com 138. 
The phone number for this podcast is 312-625-8492. You can receive emails and newsletter updates at j-dorty.com slash newsletter. Read and listen to the show uh, and uh, show notes and episode highlights at j-dorty.com. Clips and highlights at thedortyfiles.com. This has been a JD Media Network production. Thank you so much for listening. J. Doherty Podcast is written, hosted, produced, and edited by J. Doherty. The J. Doherty Podcast is a JD Media Network production. Copyright J. Doherty 2020. Make sure to listen to other JD Media Network productions, like the JDRC Politics Podcast for discussions on international politics, or the Weekly File for all the news, just the facts. Learn more and hear more of this content at j-doherty.com or view archived clips and show highlights at thedohertyfiles.com. Thank you for listening to the Jay Doherty Podcast.